Welcome back to Poetechnics, a podcast about the intersections of poetic and technical knowledge from the MIT Literature section. I'm Michael Lutz, and today I'm joined by Dr. Arthur Barr, Associate Professor in the MIT Literature section. Welcome, Arthur. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Just to start out uh, with kind of a a general question, um, could you just tell us a little bit more about the field that you study and your research interests, and perhaps more importantly, the related classes that you teach here at MIT? Yeah, so I'm a medievalist, which means that I study the Middle Ages, broadly the European Middle Ages, broadly defined sort of 500 to 1500 um, of the common era. Um, More specifically within that, my research focus is sort of late medieval England, so um, uh, 1300s, basically 1200s to 1400s. Um, But my research interests are really about sort of the relationship between material and literary form. Um, That is to say how the materiality of a poem changes or affects the poetic, what we might think of as the poetic content, its poetic contours. Um, But I teach much more broadly than that. So in addition to teaching, um, uh, let's see, Chaucer, um, Canterbury Tales, uh, seminars that are kind of squarely in my research areas. Um, I teach several CIH classes, including um, the 001 Homer to Dante, um, and um, uh, reading poetry 004, which isn't really medieval at all. We just read the whole the whole sweep. Um, and I'm co-teaching a new class in the spring um, with Alex Forte um, on the Trojan War and its kind of afterlives. And that's also um, that's also a CIH. Um, but I also do Old English and um, I've taught on the Pearl Manuscript. Um, so. It's, 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 a, it's a nice combination of getting to range widely, but also dive in. So that sounds really interesting. Uh, could you say a, li- a little bit more uh, about the maybe similarities or differences between teaching uh, literature on the one hand, but also specific languages on the other? So you said uh, Old English, but I know you've also taught Middle English. Uh, what's kind of the difference of uh, experience there, both teaching and maybe learning? How have you, have you seen uh, those different classroom experiences go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And Old English and Middle English are really very different from one another. So Old English refers to the version of the language that was spoken and and written in um, before the Norman Conquest of 1066. So this is the sort of before all of the French infusion of words and grammatical structures that came over um, the channel with William the Conqueror, um, English looked very different, much more like Latin or German in the sense that it was a case-based language. So we use word order to tell the different parts of a sentence. So, right, dog bites man has a very different meaning from man bites dog. Um, But in Latin or German or Old English, those sentences, the word order doesn't matter because the case endings, the endings at the end of the word, 
tell you what grammatical function it has. So teaching Old English is really about teaching students how to kind of reconfigure their brains to think about language and specifically a version of our own language in a in a totally different way. It's very um so it's it's almost like problem solving. So translating a sentence of old English is like is a little bit like a puzzle. Um and MIT students um, in my experience, love puzzles. Um, they tend to be incredibly good at Old English. Um, I remember the first time I taught it, I had to, um, I, I set what I thought was quite a hard exam, and the average score was like a 98, because they were just, you know, they were just really, really good. <laughs> and um, anyway, so Old English is... Um, it's a very different kind of teaching because there's a lot of um, it's it's much closer, frankly, to a technical subject um, because it, it is a technical subject. Um, and, but we also read, you know, we read poetry. We talk about the poetry. Um, middle English, which is the um, as the name suggests, the 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 period kind of in the middle between, on the one hand, Old English, and on the other hand, Modern English. Middle English is when. Old English has like kind of changed out of recognition by the infusion of these um, mostly French but continental um, uh, influences, vocabulary and syntax as well. So the case system of Old English starts to break down very soon after the conquest um, or relatively soon after the conquest. Um, but what's interesting about Middle English is that they hadn't yet so, right, the case system, which is one way of orienting how the parts of a sentence work together, the case system is breaking down, but they haven't yet established the strict word order that we have in order to sort of disambiguate um, who's biting whom, um, uh, metaphorically. <laughs> and so what this means is that Middle English can be much more challenging to read than one might think, because although the words often look fairly familiar the the syntax and the and the um word order can be quite different from what we would expect and poets play with that poets like Chaucer the pearl poet um others that I study and teach they play with that flexibility of the language quite a lot so so teaching middle english is not it's it's very different from teaching old english in the sense that um there isn't a lot of formal grammar to learn but there is I almost think of it as like relaxing one's brain or one's reading muscles and just like you have to be okay with ambiguity in the sentence for longer because it it's often just like not clear until fairly late in the sentence who that dependent clause is referring to from the beginning. And sometimes it's just never clear and that ambiguity is part of the point. That's really fascinating. I think the uh, the who bites who question should be like maybe the the core question of any linguistic study <laughs> if we're talking about grammar. Uh, and I think sort of on related lines uh, to touch on the title of this podcast, uh, the Greek term poesis is generally understood to mean the act of poetic or imaginative making, while techne is better described as the practical technique or process by which something is made or done. Poetechnics, then, is a way of thinking about how poetry may be understood as a technology, and technology as itself poetic, as different but similar means for making or doing in the world. And you've already talked quite a bit about this in terms of uh, differences in language. Um, but how do you see poesis and techne intersecting in authors and texts you study, uh, whether that's Chaucer, Arthuriana, the Pearl Manuscript, or maybe even uh, talking a little bit more about the textual forms that you're working with, uh, thinking here of book history, and I know the work that you've done on medieval 
medieval miscellanies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think one thing to bear in mind is that in the Middle Ages, um, all branches of knowledge and intellectual inquiry were much more um, enmeshed um, than they are today. So um, if you went to, if you if you were a student in the Middle Ages, you studied um, rhetoric, grammar, logic, but also music, um, mathematics, astronomy, like all of these things were thought to be interrelated. So um, the word poet in Middle English is actually quite, um, quite reserved for, it's mostly reserved for like ancient fancy authors. Um, Chaucer, I don't think ever calls himself a poet, although I should probably have checked that before coming in here. The more common word for what we think of as a poet in the Middle Ages is a maker. Um, and um, so because there was this idea that you were when you were when you were crafting a poem, you're building something new out of mostly established parts, as it were. So what the um, so what the poet does is take um, the sort of learning and the motifs of the past and like build them into a new form. So um, so that that aspect of the kind of thinking of poetry writing as a kind of craft um, is one way in which I think poesis and um, and techne are kind of necessarily interrelated mm -hmm. um, in the Middle Ages. Um, and then another way to answer that question um, would simply be that a lot of poets in the Middle Ages, partly because of the um, sort of interrelation of the various branches of knowledge that we talked about earlier, um, they are, uh, a lot of them are just genuinely really interested in what we think of as scientific and mathematical phenomena. So Chaucer, as well as writing the Canterbury Tales, also writes the first, the earliest surviving technical manual for a scientific instrument in English. Um, he wrote a, a, it's unfinished, but he, he, he wrote a treatise on the astrolabe. The astrolabe is sort of like a, an early kind of sextant um, or compass, not quite, but, um, and he wrote a little manual on how to use it for his son, <laughs> um, Lewis. Um, meanwhile, the Pearl Poet is like utterly obsessed with like geometry and numbers and all of this. I mean, math majors would love this, would love this, this, these, these texts because like there's all of this very intricate, um, uh, play with like perfect numbers and perfect cubes and like all all that stuff. So there's so there's a sense in which the pearl poet, especially those are works that are sort of simultaneously textual, but also really numerical and mathematical in some important sense. Speaking as uh, an early modernist, someone trained primarily in the 16th and 17th centuries when uh, these divisions between branches of knowledges are becoming instantiated. Uh, and one of the reasons that this podcast is called what it is is precisely because I have uh, read the the humanists, uh, you know, winnowing all this stuff out and thinking, well, what what were things like prior to those points? And 
you know, the fact that Chaucer's writing a, a guide on how to use your astrolabe is uh, a really great case study in exactly everything we're all about here. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, it, and it's actually like surprisingly, um, it's surprisingly readable. Like you can actually, I mean, for the on the rare occasions you might have cause to use an astrolabe, you can actually you can actually use Chaucer's treatise as a as a pretty reasonable, um, you know, way to get started. <laughs> Uh, and just to follow up on uh, a thing that you've mentioned just uh, tertiarily a little bit, um, how do uh, the forms of texts or the, let's say the forms of books uh, come into play in all of this for you? Because, again, uh, uh, you've written on miscellanies, uh, compilations of uh, disparate uh, texts or like excerpts from texts uh, uh, by various people for various occasions. Uh, but you've also done work on illustrated manuscripts. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So um, just to sort of lay out some some terms, um, uh, a, a, mis a, a miscellany is really, as, as we use the term today, mostly just means a volume whose contents look miscellaneous to us, right? Um, there's an interesting question there, though, about whether they would have looked miscellaneous to their original owners, right? Um, so one, so my first book really got started by taking some of these manuscripts that had been described as miscellanies or um, compilations in a kind of non-technical sense. Um, and I was interested in how the selection and arrangement of pieces, of parts, to put into a manuscript becomes a kind of authorship, albeit not the kind that we traditionally think of. Um, because if I'm the compiler who's making the choice of which which bits to include, what order to include them in, um, then I'm exerting a, a, a kind of authorial control over the effect of the volume, the compilation as a whole. So compilation became, in my first book, became my term for um, a, a, a textual collection that is selected and arranged so as to offer an interpretable so as to so as to be more than the sum of its parts basically mm -hmm. right um more recently i've been um working with uh the illustrated uh pearl manuscript whose formal designation is British Library Cotton Nero A10 slash <laughs> two, but this is the this is the very small, um, less than um, less than five by seven inches, um, only surviving copy of four Middle English poems from around the same time as Chaucer, maybe slightly earlier, so like thirteen fifties to eighties ish. Um, among them, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was. Very, very famous and just got made into a movie, The Green Knight with Dev Patel, which I recommend, actually. Um, weird, weird ending, but there's a weird, weird ending to the book, too, so, or to the poem, rather. Anyway, um, so there I'm really interested in the sequencing of the poems, as I was in my earlier work, but also even more precisely um, with the kind of layout of individual pages, the sort of paratextual, by which I mean the kind of, um, the paratextual apparatus, meaning um, all the stuff like um, little paraf paragraph marks in the margin, all the stuff that isn't the poem itself. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, this manuscript got illustrated um, after the poems were copied, which is really interesting and very, very rare. Um, so I'm so I've become interested in not just the illustrations, but also in how that manuscript specifically, but also the broader phenomenon of manuscripts kind of evolving over time. That this it's not just like these were not stable objects um, that were made once and then kind of never adjusted, never never um, changed. Um, we tend to think of our books, or I think we tend to think of our books today as like pretty stable objects. Um, and that was just much less true then. Right. And I think also here of, um, uh, uh, to maybe be a, bit, a little bit of a, egregious about it, right? Uh, but in some ways, uh, looking closely at the materiality of older texts, poems and things like that, we often think of poems as just, you know, these words that you uh, somehow beam off the page and into your head, and that's really mm -hmm. the poem. But one of the things that your work kind of insists upon here is that uh, the form that the poem takes materially on the page is, is a part of that meaning, a part of that experience. And to me, that seems really resonant with uh, us spending so much time looking at screens, uh, which have, you know, both text that we think of as text or video that is the core content. But then uh, those screens are showing us pages that are designed. Those designs are not stable. They're in flux. They're changing. How that information is being presented will shift with us. Uh, and I think that's a, a really fascinating resonance across uh, kind of very different time periods, very different specific media. And yet at the same time... Uh, shows us something about how uh, uh, poesis and techne uh, can speak to one another. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, I think in a lot of ways, the pre-modern page has a lot to teach us about the post-modern page, sort of both physical page and web page. <laughs> um, really, the, the kind of, the, this idea of the, of the printed text, the printed authorially sanctioned text as a stable entity is really of the, is, 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 you know, is really a historical anomaly that was, <laughs> that, 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 that had a, a, a several century long currency until quite recently. <laughs> um, but I think we're now in a much more fluid um, uh, moment in time um, akin to, akin to the Middle Ages, actually. Pivoting a little bit from that, uh, what are some of the most memorable or unique classroom experiences you and your students have had uh, related to the things we've just talked about or anything else? And have you seen your students kind of carry those lessons forward from the literature classroom in both poetic and technical ways? Yeah. Um, so one way to answer that question is to, to just describe some of the extraordinary projects that I've gotten um, in my Arthurian literature class. So um, for that class, um, we read Mallory's, Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, which is it's incredibly long, nearly 1,000 page, um, massive, massive, um, it's kind of like a novel, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a long prose work about King Arthur and the, the death of him and all of his knights. <laughs> um, and the... Final project, students can either write a traditional paper or they can create something that tries to make sense of how Mallory uses time and space, um, and or space, I should say. Um, and I've gotten some of the most extraordinary uh, creative literally made, <laughs> um, in some cases with a laser cutter <laughs> projects, um, board games. I mean, 
Um, this one, oh my gosh, this one woman did, uh, she took all 21 books because the, the single Mallory is divided into 21 sort of books, each with millions of chapters. And she made a sort of scale model of the relation between the, um, the knights in the, in the, in the, um, in the book. So basically every night she gave a different color of thread and um, depending on how close, the, how closely the threads were, were, were overlapping or not, they, um, that indicated how, how physically proximate the knights were. It was this fascinating sort of, um, but it was all to scale in the sense that each chapter was one quarter of an inch. So you, so at the end you had this like really remarkable, almost, and in some ways, literal tapestry of the plot <laughs> of the book. And it was fascinating to see it for me. And, you know, they, we all, they all present their stuff at the end of the semester. So it was fascinating for me and everybody else to see that um, kind of representation, that sort of translation of the verbal written text into a completely different medium. They would never in a million years, because I'm not a maker at all. Like, I I, I hate working with my hands. Um, but, it, so I would never have come up with that. And that was such a great moment um, of, like, I am so lucky to teach at MIT specifically because I can't imagine anywhere else where that would happen on a frankly regular basis. I mean, I went into a lot of depth about her project, but I could equally go into, well, go into the, you know, the board game where there is no way to win the game because there's no way to win the the death of Arthur, right? Like there's just, it's, anyway, it's just brilliant stuff. Um, so, so yeah. Um, that's a that's a long answer to I think only one part of your question. Can you so that can you remind <laughs> me what else I was supposed to talk about? Oh, I mean that was that was really it. It was just a, a what are sort of memorable and unique classroom experiences. But um, also, if you're aware of any, uh, do you know of any lessons that were kind of taken beyond the classroom? Like, do you know of students who've gone on to you know do maybe technical work, but uh, that you can see kind of the through line from the work they did in your class to that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, one, 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 one example I think would be a student who, uh, of mine who was a, a double major in aeroastro and, um, and, and lit. And he, um, now makes, helps build spy planes for the defense department in some like underground, like bunker, I don't know, in California in the desert, I think. Um, and he, we got together, he was back in, in town, um, and we got together, and I was just, was just, like, asking him about his, like, daily life, because it sounded so crazy, and, <laughs> and to me, unpleasant, but, like, I was curious, and he was like, no, no, it's, it's, it's great, and, and I don't remember exactly how the conversation got to this moment, but at some point he said, you know, I just think it's, I just really appreciate having studied literature at MIT, because now I... You know, I'm often the only person in those rooms who has like read a poem, and and I think that you know you you might say what does reading a poem have to do with building a plane? But I think one answer to that question is that reading poetry and and especially thinking hard and writing about poetry is just it 
opens up a different part of your brain. And it's and I think when anytime you're using at a high level a different part of your brain from what you usually use, that has knock-on benefits sort of almost no matter what. Um, they may or may not be conscious, uh, or rather you may not, one, one, we may not be conscious of that, um, of that benefit, but I think it's, I think it's absolutely there. Um, uh, another example, I guess, would be um, a student of mine who, who, who went into, who, who's in medical school, um, and who was talking about the importance of um, having a, he, uh, he, he talked about how he got a better understanding of narrative and like the power and importance of narrative in just the world, um, which of course for doctors trying to treat patients, they all patients come in with some kind of narrative, however, sort of inchoate and whatever. Um, so, so that's a, so that's another example. Well, that's really fantastic, Arthur. Uh, thank you so much for uh, meeting with me today and for this conversation. It's, it's been wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, Michael. <laughs> 